<laughs> I was not drinking whiskey when I was 21. I wasn't either. Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 20 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graben. We've got a very special and interesting episode today. Those of you who are watching on YouTube will already notice that there are four of us here. Those of you who are listening, that'll be revealed to you in a second. But um, Jamie Flinchbaugh and I are doing a live episode that's being recorded and, and released as part of the Colorado Lean Network, um, should we say annual conference? I don't have the exact wording there. Summit. 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 But we wanna thank the Colorado Lean Network um, for inviting us to do this session where we've got live attendees from the Colorado Lean Network um, a pro, uh, group and conference. Um, so we've also got, of course, Jamie Flinchball with us. Hello. Um, yeah, last, last time I was here, I did it from my porch, but it's uh, dark and cold. So I uh, thought, I'd, thought I'd move to the bar and out of the office. Um, so glad to, glad to see everyone. So we have two co-hosts with us uh, today. Um, Katie Bennick and Jen House. Uh, uh, so this will be a, another experiment in the continuing evolution of Lean Whiskey with uh, a live conference episode. We would have maybe done this from the bar in Colorado, but we'll do it this way instead, which is which was perfectly great. So Jen, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself first? Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys for having us. I'm excited to be on here and I'm excited to reflect on our conference. So I'm Jen House. I am a performance improvement specialist at Lutheran Medical Center, which is a hospital part of the SCL Health System in uh, Wheat Ridge, Colorado. And I'm also privileged to serve on the board of directors with the Colorado Lean Network as director of um, events and co-director of events. And so thrilled to get to um, be with these great, great leaders in Lean, as Katie said. Um, and just kind of reflecting on what we're hearing through our conference. Thanks. Awesome. And uh, Katie. Thanks. So I'm Katie Benick. I am also a performance improvement specialist at a different hospital and different hospital system within Colorado. Uh, so if we veer off into hospital talk, Jamie, you'll have to bring us back. Um, I got into lean by way of organizational development and people development. So I spent 10 years kind of in that space and then had some great mentors who said, Hey, why don't you help, you know, change some processes as well. They recognize the skills. So I jumped into the lean seat about three years ago and I love learning and talking about it and getting really nerdy. And I welcome you to my neighbor's bar, which I have stolen for this occasion to drink whiskey with, for you all. Yeah, I, I didn't think uh, it'd be easy to, to up the, uh, the lean whiskey bar background, but uh, you, you've done a good job there. So uh, awesome. Thanks for joining us. Um, I, you know, I've, I've done work in healthcare, not as much as uh, all of you, but uh, going back almost 20, over 20 years, actually, uh, we did some of the first lean healthcare work. So no problem if we talk lean healthcare. So uh, before we get into the whiskey, Mark, you have this uh, zero hat on. I, I hope this you're not launching a new <clears throat> lean whiskey brand that has zero calories. No, no, that would have zero taste, I think. Exactly. 
I don't know how vodka man- manages to have calories with, uh, to me, zero taste. But um, I'm, I'm wearing, for those of you who are listening, I'm wearing a hat that says in big capital letters, zero, uh, which I, I don't have a hat that I put on every time I have another drink. This is not to keep track. One, of, it's a visual control. With one, two, three. And- no, I mean, I, I should have a hat that says uh, some because I've had some. some whiskey so far. But real briefly, um, Thursday... September 17th is the World Health Organization's World Patient Safety Day. So there are a lot of um, online events and education and advocacy going on. This hat that says zero is from the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. Um, they, they sell these as a fundraiser and, you know, it's meant to be a conversation starter and we can we, we won't go into the whole conversation here, but we can talk about the need to push for zero harm uh, in healthcare for patients. Part of this year's theme with the WHO is also focusing on zero harm uh, for healthcare workers and medical professionals. Um, so that's why I'm wearing the hat today and it's impossible to get a haircut in Los Angeles right now. I do not sympathize. <laughs> Every time I mention hair, then I'm like, oh, right. Sorry, Jane. Yeah. Is what it is. <laughs> So thanks for asking about the hat. Um, so we are going to, um, yeah, our format's gonna be a little bit different today. So the one thing that is the same is uh, that we're gonna talk about uh, our whiskeys. And so we've got the four of us, we're gonna do a rundown of what we're drinking. Um, the theme today is budget-friendly whiskeys. And then we are going to talk about um, different conference takeaways. And I think we may get some um, live questions um, from the attendees. So uh, real quick to Jen, I can see the Q&A, so I think I'm going to have to moderate that um, as, as the host of the meeting. Um, I can see it also. You can, oh, okay. All right, yeah. good. So um, who is going to go first? Uh, should we let our guests go first, Jamie? Sure, why don't we, uh, um, just so, just so that the, the true whiskey drinkers can move past it, and not to comment too much. Why don't we start with Katie's selection? All right, so I, I am not a whiskey drinker. Um, I did some rapid, rapid experimentation before this. I apologize. Not right before this though, right? Not, not right before this. Uh, this is my first beverage of the day. Um, no, I, I, I don't drink whiskey, so I'm sorry. I'm putting it out there. Um, but I love that Mark and Jamie support me in this. I am drinking screwball peanut butter whiskey. Um, and I know some whiskey drinkers who think that's great and some whiskey drinkers who don't, but this is what I'm drinking and I like it tonight. And it's got a screwy spelling, S-K-R-E-W, screwball. I've never had it, so I, I guess like I, I, I haven't gone to that whiskey gemba, if you will, so I, I won't judge. No, and we, we don't judge whiskey anyway. If you want to put it on ice or mix it with whatever or uh, uh sip it and then toss out half a glass it's 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 your whiskey so enjoy it any way you any way you can yeah drink what you like right all right i'm having the um kirkland blended scotch my husband is a um huge fan of all things kirkland so that is what we have in the house hence the theme for budget friendly. Um, we love to get anything at, at Costco. Um, and I did manage to find our, our ice ball makers. So I did manage to make myself an ice ball in preparation. 
Nice. Very Colorado glass you have there too. <laughs> it was the only one big enough to fit the ice ball. <laughs> it's like a mason jar. Huh? Yeah. That can be the problem with ice balls. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I should I should have researched this. I'm not sure who makes the the whiskey for Kirkland, but um, um what I I saw that. Um, I'll try and find it while we're chatting. But I did see. I think it was. I don't remember. Yeah, we know it's not themselves. So, um, and I'm drinking. I I, I think it's a, a nice staple, uh, uh, cheaper bourbon is Elijah Craig Small Batch. Pretty easy to find. Usually in the twenty dollar range, twenty dollars something. Um, and uh, uh, you know the whole idea of, of affordable uh, affordable whiskey is uh, um, you know share it among friends, have a drink every night. You don't want a you know hundred dollar bottle. And, and these are have plenty of taste and, and uh, plenty of options, whether you mix it or drink it neat uh, without without ice, as I am tonight. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good choice, too. And before I introduce mine, I, I'm just going to mention that now that I'm in California and it is a state where Costco sells liquor, I'm going to have to check out the Kirkland brand. And I almost bought the Trader Joe's brand high rye bourbon, which is, um, I'm sure, made by somebody reputable and in the Trader Joe's way, they put their name on it. So that's another affordable option. I did type my answer to Stephanie V who had a question about where in Colorado you can buy Kirkland liquor. So the, the Costco at Quincy and Wadsworth and Littleton is the only one that sells Kirkland products and happens to also be the closest one to my house, which is very convenient. Um, so if you're in Colorado, then uh, that's where you can, Go buy that liquor and tell them Jen sent you. Yeah. <laughs> so then, so what I am drinking, I'll hold up my glass. I've got it neat in you know the Glen Cairn glass. I'm drinking Buffalo Trace. So this is their you know kind of their their lowest tier. It's about twenty five dollars a bottle, uh, weeded bourbon from Kentucky. And the other thing I'm adjusting to in California is that you know when I was in Texas. You cannot find Buffalo Trace. If stores get it, it's on like allocation. You've got to know the owner. They keep it in the back room. They may or may not jack up the price. Buffalo Trace in California is on the shelves of every grocery store, of every CVS. And those of you, you know, when you, when you can, um, I shouldn't say this publicly because now people are going to come to California and, and, and rate it. And take it back to where they're going. But, you know, this is, you know, like for a $25 bottle, it's, it's supposedly aged seven or eight years. It's, it's the same family tree that includes um, Eagle Rare, and it's the same producer as Weller and Pappy Van Winkle. And so there's, there's some good genes in this whiskey here. I like Buffalo Trace a lot. Yeah, we, we said budget friendly. We didn't say easily findable, which apparently Kirkland isn't easily findable for everyone either. So, um, so you you gotta you gotta shop from where you are and uh, or or buy online, in which case it usually no longer makes it budget friendly. So, uh, um, yeah, those are those are our selections. Hopefully, we we hear what other people are drinking uh, uh, while we're while we're on live. Well, I'm just looking at the chat real quick. We've got um, somebody drinking a Japanese whiskey. We've got somebody drinking a small batch Vermont bourbon called Mad River Distillers. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there's all kinds of um, Knob Creek. Someone's drinking Knob Creek bourbon on ice. Um, that's all I see right now. So if anyone else wants to share 
what they are sipping right now, if you are indeed doing that. Um, let us know. If you're watching the recording on YouTube, put a comment in the YouTube box. It would be good. Absolutely. Always like to hear. And I know I got a photo from somebody, and I won't call them out, but they have a picture of the same Elijah Craig I'm drinking. So that was their, that was their plan for tonight. So that's, uh, that's awesome. Um, so, yeah, we like to, uh, for those that are new to this, uh, uh, this podcast, uh, it's Mark and I started off by getting together in different towns whenever we had a chance and we'd find a good whiskey bar and talk shop. And so we thought, why not, why not share those conversations with more? Uh, and this just became a, a, a project of fun uh, for Mark and I. And we're now into 20 episodes. 20 episodes. And it's a little bit of whiskey talk, a lot of lean talk, but maybe the lean talk is whiskey fueled a touch. A touch, a touch. So, uh, so yeah, why don't we get on to the, uh, the lean talk? Um, so since we're doing this so live with the conference, we thought we'd start with some, some takeaways from the conference so far. So we're two days into this, uh, plenty of speakers, plenty of, of, uh, highlights and uh, things to talk about. So we're gonna start with some highlights and just as we usually do, kind of react to those and talk about them a bit. Um, so uh, I know Jen and Katie have been been uh, documenting a few of their, their highlights uh, along the way. So who wants to kick us off with the first one? Um, I can kick us off. So we started the session with a great discussion from Deandra Wardell. Um, and she was highlighting her shift from being a micromanaging controlling manager to somebody who um, is really trying to support people, encourage them to experiment, take action. I've definitely heard that theme come up a lot of times through a lot of the different talks that I've heard over the last two days is um, how do we be empowering to those um, around us and, and support and coach. Um, and so one of the things I was pondering is how do you start coaching somebody who has zero experience in lean? I have a couple of people like this around me who I really want to get them rolling on projects and thinking lean and um, am, am struggling with wow, there's so much you need to know. And I wish I could just take my brain and, and, you know, and give it to you. Um, and I can't. And so do I need to give you a class first? Do I need to do a whole training or do I just sit and chat with you for an hour and give you little snippets? But sometimes when that happens, I feel like I just end up swirling and then you need to know that. And then you need to know that. And then you need to know that. Um, so that's something I'm, I was kind of pondering. Yeah, and that that's a that's a tough one. You know, first of all, you know, Deandra brings so much energy to the, the project. It's hard for a screen to contain her over a virtual world. Um, and her most recent project uh, was was a, a blog takeover for Mark um, before her her speech here. But um, yeah, it's it's very difficult. And and you know, the, the excitement that we sometimes bring to a new person wanting to coach them can be an impediment in its own right. We Hey, here's six books and here's 17 videos and here's here's a whole uh, glossary of jargon you need to learn. And and before they've even taken a first step, uh, they've they've been turned off to it. And so some, sometimes uh, coaching someone just taking their first steps is much harder than coaching someone that's that's uh, years into it uh, from, from that regard, because our 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 passion and excitement can get can get the best of us. 
And Katie, what are your experiences with this? So I've, I've coached people on all sides of that spectrum. So brand new to lean, I used to talk in our orientation program as well. And so I always liked that it was a great chance to introduce people to lean and kind of get them excited about it. Um, and I, I really start at that high level. I say, you know, we're here to make things better for you guys doing the work and for the people that we serve. Is that something you guys want to do? So I try to start really easy. Um, I try to take all the lean speak out of it. So, you know, it can be intimidating to use all the Japanese words and all of those pieces, but we talk about waste and we start thinking about where are those places where it makes sense in your world. Um, and then I've had people join a model cell. So, you know, things where all the lean activities are going on and they don't have that frame of reference. And that's really hard too, because there's, there's all the lean words all around them. So I think that's a common common problem that we all face, how to get someone up to speed. And I'll tell you over the years, it's different for every individual too. So it really is meeting that leader where they are and saying, what do you need? Where do you need to start? What works best for you? Um, Because where I've started with two similar people, you know, we've ended up in two different places. So it's got to be an individualized approach too. One thing just, you know, reflecting on, you know, uh, Deandra was sharing thoughts about shifting from being you know, the, the, the controlling or directive or micromanaging manager as a coach inside an organization or as an external consultant, there's often a need to kind of go through that same evolution. There are, um, you know, a lot of times where, where someone gets real dogmatic in their approach or their recommendations and that you always have to do this, or I'm going to tell you what to do. And, you know, and, and, you know, when I worked at the manufacturing company, like I wrote about in uh, Practicing Lean, which is over my shoulder and I can't point to it. There we go. Um, in the book, Practicing Lean, you know, I was guilty of being the lean person, internal consultant running a project who was told, go fix things in this department. I didn't do nearly enough to engage the people that were that were doing that work. So part of my growth and evolution and development was being, you know, less directive and and, and more of... I think, you know, engaging effective coach who is, you know, Deandra said, encourages people to experiment and learn and being a guide instead of being so directive. And I think that, you know, when you're, when you're a coach, uh, you know, some of that controlling comes out of fear, uh, uh, desire to need to deliver some kind of outcome and not have patience for the process or not confidence in the process to get someone there. So you, you feel the controlling need to, to push along. I think where it's sort of permanently harder is that manager is coach because you, you do still have to control some things. You have an obligation and the higher you are in the organization, you sometimes have a legal obligation. And, uh, and, and so you have to really balance that need between manager and coach and when to play what role. Um, you know, I, I, I coach soccer and, and, uh, and I like to use analogies or examples from that. And, and, you know, when I'm coaching a game, I'll see a player and, you know, often in a wrong position, they're just out of shape with the, the rest of the team and need to adjust. And if I really care about the outcome, if I'm super controlling about the outcome, I'll just tell them where to be. And in that moment, I'm a manager because I'm trying to get the outcome. And sometimes I'll, you know, tell them where to be and tell them why, in which case I've adjusted to be a teacher, but it's still my, it's still my outcome, right? It's still my definition. And then, you know, where I, where I 
truly am a coach. It's where I ask them, are you in the right spot? Let them adjust and then perhaps help them reflect when they come off the field. And, and then that's when I truly let go of the outcome and focus on their learning. And that's when, that's when you cross the, the chasm into being a coach. But, you know, I'm very clear if, if we're, as we were last season, playing the last 10 minutes of the game for, in our case, second place in the league, I can spend 10 minutes being a manager because the outcome at that moment mattered more than the learning. And you do have to balance those two needs when you're manager and coach, which is always a tough balance. Well, and so when you see the players in the wrong position and you know the answer, I think that's the toughest situation as a coach. So one thing I did during the pandemic here was binge watched um, Schitt's Creek. I see nods from Katie, Gene. I've heard of it. (laughs) No, but um, there's an episode, uh, David Rose is in the store and he's chastising Patrick about how some product is, no, that's just in the wrong place. That's just wrong. And he was, and Patrick was sort of questioning like, well, how do you, he's like, I just know. It just is. (laughs) He has a very clear vision that um, was, was he, he wasn't being a coach. He was just being directive. He's like, I know, do what I say. And that can be funny in a TV program, but not really helpful in the workplace. Well, and you can take it a step further too. So I've always made the joke, you could, coaching little kids, you know, you could go out there and score the goal yourself, (laughs) (laughs) right? That's you really getting in there. But I mean, we do this in the workplace. We're like, no, no, I'll just, I'll just do it myself. But we need to be able to step back and have the kids learn how to do it. And it makes a lot more sense in that coaching analogy when the kids are out there, but we don't see it the same in the workplace. (laughs) But that's what we're doing. We're jumping out on the field. Great analogy. And then we complain why nobody ever knows how to do it. (laughs) And you get to jump out on the field once before you're banned from the league. (laughs) And in the workplace, people get to jump in over and over again. I love that analogy. Yeah, there's a great, there's a great video that I'll, I'll have to dig up of a little kids playing soccer and a dad frustrated with his son's inability to, to, to goaltend, to keep, to attend the goal. And he literally picks them up and throws them at the ball. Um, and the, the goal goes in, the, the ball goes in anyway, and then he walks away in disgust. Uh, hopefully he was banned. It was, it was definitely over the line. Um, so we want to move on to a different takeaway. Absolutely. But before we do so, um, you know, Jamie, you had mentioned DeAndre and just elaborate on that point. Um, yeah, I, I, I liked, uh, I, I called it a blog handover. I blog, you know, I, I handed over the blog to DeAndra for a week and she recruited uh, 15 women to write blog posts on a theme that we called, um, she came up with the hashtag root cause racism. And it was, it's been great over the last few months being able to collaborate with DeAndra and and to learn more about her. And, and so it was really good to partner up um, with her on that. So good choice in having her uh, come and, uh, and be a speaker. I hadn't seen her in that setting. Um, so that was really, uh, that was, I enjoyed that the other day. Awesome. So let's go to our second conference takeaway. Yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll take the lead on this one because I contributed, you know, there, there, there's always good discussion in conferences and events about respect for people. And it's a good thing. I think we would all agree but um, you know, what does that really mean in daily practice? Is it easier to say we're going to respect people or how do we know when that's really taking place? 
Yeah, and this is a this is a I mean, this is always one of the the key tenets of lean, right? We throw this around and make it a pillar and put it on our models and our PowerPoint slides. But it, it's one of those topics, like I, I spent a lot of this year going into the topic of trust, and it was the same thing with trust. It, it's a bullet point, right? You throw, oh, lean is about respect for people. And then that's that's it. And people are like, okay, well, what does that what does that mean? How do we codify that into something meaningful? And 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 too often people think it's about being nice, which you know, it's not about being mean, but it's it's not about being nice. Um, and 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 just just to start uh, as an example of this, it's actually about embracing conflict. Right? Uh, conflict is good. Conflict, when managed properly and respectfully, is what leads to new understanding and and insights and breakthroughs and solutions. And conflict is a is a good thing to to bring into the work the workplace. And without it, it's you know everything ends up conflict that you take home with you at the end of the day. And that's that's not productive at all. So that's just an example. And there's many more. I love to hear people's thoughts around, you know, what, what, what should respect for people really mean? Jen, what do you think? So this was really interesting for me. And I think this maybe is my like engineering brain um, coming through that I've always viewed respect for people as sort of a means to an end versus an end in and of itself. So our end goal is improving the quality, but a means to get there is that we respect people, we take their ideas, and then we get to our ultimate quality. So I think that this this Congress was the first time I really thought about, well, is respect for a people um, an end in and of itself? Um, and I was kind of pondering that more, like, well, if I don't fix the process, but I've really respected my people, did I really achieve what I needed to achieve, right? Um, and I, I would probably say no. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it still feels a little bit like a means to an end, but curious um, other thoughts on that. I mean, it, it could be both, I think. Um, I mean, if we have, if the only thing we have is respect and then the, the organization goes bankrupt, that's arguably not respectful of people's needs to earn a living. Um, I mean, I've heard people, former Toyota people, articulate the role of a manager. Like, I, I, I'll cite Daryl Wilburn on this, who's an American who worked uh, for Toyota a long time. That um, I'm paraphrasing, I guess, but you know, it's a manager's responsibility to create a system in which people can be successful. And to me, that's a concrete way of expressing respect for people. We're not going to just throw you out there to struggle and to fail and then blame you when there are problems. That that obligation to people for creating a good system coexists with respecting people by engaging them then in improving that system that's already, even though it's not perfect, has set them up for success. That's maybe one way of thinking about respect. Katie, what do you think? Well, and and I love respect for people and I love asking the question I've asked in front of a lot of audiences, what does respect for people look like to you? And generally they give pretty bland answers. You know, I I listen to each other. I'm like, well, that's great. Um, And it's really where that the rubber hits the road where I think this principle becomes so important. It's when we're stressed, when we don't have enough time, when we really aren't, you know, thinking of that respect for people, that's when it's most important. Um, and that's where I see the leaders struggle with it the most. It's, I don't have time to respect for people. I don't have time to go to the Gamba, which in my head, okay, you have time to do it again. 
but that's where I see respect for people fail a lot. It's, I don't have time to do it, but we know it's the most important thing to do it right and do it once. I think that's where you come back to, is it a, is an end, end of to itself or the means, at least in those moments, you know that the crisis is the, or, or, or the perceived crisis, if it's usually overweight, those things, is, is the, the end you're looking for. And so the whole point of being a crisis is that you, you, you uh, low, put lower priority on, on lots of other things. And that's okay, because that's the definition of a crisis, right? The house is burning, you don't care about dinner anymore, right? So, um, but can it carry through in those moments? At least in those moments, it's a means to an end. And, and if you read, you know, if you read history of, uh, you know, effective battlefield leaders, um, you know, the, the, the vast majority of them will, will say in those moments you need it even more. Of course it's a crisis. You're in the middle of a battle. You're in the middle of a war. Of course you don't have time to be respectful, but ultimately you need the, or- A, you need the organization to be effective together and B, to your point, you going to the Gemba, you need good information to make good decisions and just because it's a crisis, it means you probably need new information. Um, uh, hence, hence it being a crisis. And so that makes it even more important, I think, in those moments to operate in, in, in such a way that, that meets, the, meets the standard of respect for people. Well, and when you talk about crisis, I'm going to bring it back again to um, you know, the patient safety movement and my zero hat. You know, I think setting a goal of zero harm can be driven by respect for people, that nobody should be harmed as the consequence of our best efforts in imperfect systems. But I think, you know, we'd have to be careful. I wouldn't want the phrase zero harm or this hat to become just some cheap, empty slogan. That could be disrespectful, where we're just browbeating people into, you need to deliver zero or else. Well, then we get all the dysfunction of people hiding and covering up problems, and now we've you know, gotten off track. So I think um, a goal like zero can be inspiring with the right style of leadership. I think the late Paul O'Neill proved that at Alcoa, you know, that that setting the bar really high for excellence, that we want to be the best. We're going to set goals at what, what he would have called the theoretical limit. That can be problematic if we're not engaging and coaching and supporting and and, and driving the right leadership behaviors in the organization. So that's why I'm a little careful with the hat. I, mean, I don't mean it to <laughs> seem like a scolding or a slogan. Before we move on, I did want to, um, I think give a shout out to our hospital leadership that as we pass through the COVID crisis, they really recognize the need for resilience and, and the need to give our, our teams a chance to kind of, Take a, take a deep breath before we jump back into all the other metrics and all the other things that we were chasing. Um, and I think during COVID, it was more of that kind of crisis mode. Hey, we don't have time to go to Gemba. We just need an answer right now. Like we need to put something in place. We need a process. We need it now. And I think that the staff generally understood that. They knew that we knew that we were going to be making a lot of really rapid changes. Um, and then I think as we kind of subsided past the, the surge, our leaders were like, okay, we need to take six to eight weeks to just 
focus on our staff, give them an opportunity to do resilience. We had um, lead measures in every department on how are you engaging your staff in resilience behaviors? How are you taking walks? How are you using resources um, and, and doing a professional quality of life survey? So it was really cool to see that um, and, and then also see the result of how appreciative the staff were of the leadership that they took that time and then okay now we're jumping back into the craziness of all the other quality metrics that we need to be achieving and we're supportive we're on board you know we appreciate that you've taken some time to recognize what we've been through so that was really cool yeah yeah that's 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 important and you know, this has really been the pandemic is really a test of of, uh, of leadership in a lot of domains. Um, you know, I, I I apologize if I use this joke with our podcast listeners before, but um, you know, last year the business roundtable declared that you know, even though even though there's questionable legality behind this because laws haven't caught up with our intentions, but they they sort of rewrote the purpose of business at least as the members stated as not just for shareholders, but all stakeholders. Um, and again, there's some legal questions about whether they're allowed to adopt that position, depending on what state you're in, which is an interesting uh, sidebar. But I, I kind of feel like the pandemic has been a bit of the universe saying, okay, now prove it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and some really have proven it. Some have, have really uh, adopted empathy and understanding of their employees and experimented and adjusted and admitted that they don't have all the answers to how they manage through this and and others have, you know, just gotten back to work as quickly as they can. So it's been, it's been a test and, and uh, ultimately not one that I I, I wish on the world, but one that will lead to some, some, some positive lessons for leaders and for organizations, cultures, and uh, perhaps even the law. So. Before we move on to any other takeaways, there was a question from Stephanie, um, Jen, it's directed at you. Um, regarding respect tied to the Malcolm Baldrige framework, do you think employee engagement is a means to an end or the end? And I have to confess, I don't know if I'm familiar enough with the Malcolm Baldrige framework, although our hospital wants to become a Baldrige winner eventually, so I should probably become more familiar with it. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so I I definitely would turn it back to those of you who might know a little bit more about that framework. Well, I just say employee engagement, you know, fundamentally to that business roundtable claim is is uh, you know, do you do you want as part of your business, not as a means to an end, but just as its own measure, um, engaged employees. And you know, when, five years after you retire. Um, unless you're on the speaker circuit where they introduce your stock price rise uh, during your tenure, um, you're going to probably care more about the team members you left behind than you will about, you know, your last year of profitability. And, and yeah, of course you have a, again, a legal obligation to care a lot about your financial uh, performance, but again, what are you going to remember after you leave? Um, I think it is an end unto itself um, and, and quite frankly, to some degree, I say I don't care because I think we know enough that it's also a means to an end. So even if you care about profitability and don't care about employee engagement, it's still a pretty good means to an end to get there. I'm going to interject with a quick whiskey thought because I had the opportunity here. Another product that is hard to find in other states that I could find here in California 
is Eagle Rare, which is Buffalo Trace product. I'm going to hold up the two bottles. Um, the, the interesting experiment, if you can pull it off, an Eagle Rare like goes up to like 35 bucks instead of 25 bucks. This is the exact same mash bill, the same distillate, but Eagle Rare has been aged approximately two years longer. So if you want to do this kind of side-by-side -side comparison of the impact of a little bit more age, and maybe it's just the lighting, but the, the Eagle Rare is darker. So there is a little bit of an effect from that, but um, so I poured my second whiskey and hooray to Buffalo Trace. Well, it's dangerous to introduce the idea that I can change uh, change what I'm drinking in my next pour because I have I have a few too many options without a plan. So I better I better stick with what I have, otherwise I'm going to get lost in the episode. <laughs> I think it would be fun to derail you guys about whiskey. I also have a secondary bottle here. It's of course in my experimental styles. So read super tiny bottle. Um, but I hear bullet bourbon is good. So we can go there if you want to go there. I, I, I thought it was going to be maybe like a jelly flavored whiskey that paired well <laughs> with the peanut butter whiskey. <laughs> Fireball. No, I couldn't, I couldn't go to Fireball. Peanut butter is as far as I'll go. I, I, I may have stepped in and become a directive leader if you were trying to drink Fireball during the podcast. I might have had I to, would agree to that. maybe take a stand. <laughs> there a is a limit. Stand, I think. <laughs> Not just me. There's a limit to your respect for people in regards to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's okay. It's okay. We can, we can acknowledge that. But we see in the comments here, a couple of other people like bullet, especially the rye. So that's worth um, checking out as well. Um, so we love whiskey. And again, I guess drink what you like, drink what you love. Um, and that's one of the other conference takeaways. Um, I wasn't able to attend Renee. Smith's talk, unfortunately, I, I know Renee a little bit. I've met her before. Um, who, who wants to tee up kind of what her, the takeaway from her talk? Well, I'm all over it. All right. Um, and I think it, it really speaks. So I did my undergrad in psychology. And so it really jives with everything I've always loved. And I'll use that word very strategically. So she talked about love and lean. And she talked about psychological safety as a requirement for continuous improvement. And I thought that was just a really interesting idea. And, and I think she contrasted the, how do we get results if we don't care for people versus, you know, how do we care for people and get results? And so it really was the, the people side. And that's something I'm very drawn to as somebody who used to work, you know, solely on developing leaders. It's something that kind of jives with my personality. So, you know, especially with you guys and your experience in continuous improvement, you know, talking about that psychological safety and what has to be there for improvement work to actually work. Yeah, I, I think safety is, uh, you know, we, we talk about continuous improvement being driven largely by experimentation. And that's one of my favorite words is to experiment. And, you know, for those of us that have had work uh, broken by, by COVID, we've, we've had to experiment a lot question is whether we did it purposely, which case I call it experimentation. And if it's not purposeful, then it's just trying stuff. And, and there is a, a pretty big difference. Um, but, but, but safety, managing safety is what reduces the fear, which leaves more room for learning, right? And so the, the more we push out the fear boundary, the more we have room to learn. And, and there are, I think, three important kinds of safety to think about. One is physical. Um, a, a very short story is that uh, 
one of the major problems with uh, aircraft a uh, hundred years ago or uh, thereabouts in the U.S. We, we used it for mail carriage um, quite a bit, and and there's a high accident rate. Usually not a high death rate because we didn't fly very high or that fast, but a high accident rate. It's because people experienced their first failure. They 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 found the boundaries of experimentation while up in the air, and so flight simulators allowed people to experiment and find the boundaries and test the waters and learn that way with physical safety and that that dramatically improved the the overall safety rate but there's there's physical safety there's professional safety and then there's emotional or psychological safety and even if it's just uh safety from your ridicule of trying something new like i have an idea oh great we need another stupid idea even if that's all it is it absolutely squashes new ideas creativity and experimentation and um, I'll just say there's no room for it in a lean environment. It's leader's job to drive that, or mm-hmm. I'll say drive it out, drive the fear out, but pro- through providing psychological safety. Yeah, so was, you know, Heather made a comment in the Q&A um, that she loves that Renee said the manager's job is to drive out fear, which is replaced by what? Love. So as Heather answered um, her, her question, but I mean, it goes back to W. Edwards Deming who talked about the need to drive out fear in organizations. Um, uh, but you know, I think of um, like one thing I reflect on getting involved in healthcare as an engineer is a shift from, you know, as much as you can generalize, at least about the manufacturing companies that I worked for, it was all about logic and math and numbers. And sure, they wanted a good culture, but like it was really really focused on the um, thinking side of the sometimes discredited Myers-Briggs framework, right? It was all about the T. And then when I got involved in healthcare, there's much more feeling. And again, I'm generalizing, but like the first time, uh, it's just being a different environment um, where people talk about love and caring as a, a deeper way of talking about respect. Like it's not a transactional respect, it's a more caring respect. And, and one of my favorite examples when I think of the word love was um, a hospital in the Netherlands that was trying to come up with a title and a label um, for their lean, what we might've called a lean um, initiative. And um, the, the, the surgeon who, was speaking about it in, in English. There was a Dutch word, which I don't know. And he said, it translates to English as loving care. I think that, because that's beautiful. I think that translates really well. Um, so, you know, they were emphasizing, you know, for example, that, that lean in healthcare for them, and I think for me, is not about ruthless efficiency. It's not just plowing through clinical tasks more rapidly. It's about eliminating waste and freeing up the space and time for loving, caring interactions between nurse and patient. Would the engineer call that value added? I don't know. The patient probably does. If the patient is, is afraid of the procedure they're going to go through, that nurse being able to take time and provide loving care, I think is really, really important. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's powerful. That's not just the whiskey talking. <laughs> well, the market the market kind of proves that out. Where just just to that specific example, um, 
you know, where, where people have uh, elective procedures, bedside manner is a distinguishing factor that people use to make decisions. Um, so if you want to be economic and, and calculating about it, the market voice has, has proven that there's value in, in, that, in that definition. Um, and I've, you know, I've always, I've always said replace the fear with learning, but, um, you know, the idea of replacing it with love is an interesting, interesting twist because, you know, the, use a different word, uh, is, it's purposeful, purposeful pursuit of passion, um, purposeful pursuit of excellence, whatever that might be, the purposeful, purposeful behind it is, is pretty important. And it's what gets people up in the morning, um, to, to do something meaningful, even regardless of what, whether they're in an industry where purpose isn't that hard to find, like healthcare, uh, or if it's something else, sometimes it's the it's the love of the interaction that is the purpose of going to work in the morning. So I'm going to jump in with a question that Dave had typed in, um, Dave Harry, um, saying basically during the lockdown that Zoom calls have in many ways brought together distant employees who might have only had phone or email contact. And now they actually get to see each other and that getting to know each other on a personal level goes a long way toward mutual understanding and fostering respect that um, there's benefit towards that. Um, so he's, he's asking to the group, I think, what, what do you think about some of the benefits of Zoom era? I, I'd say there's definitely pluses and minuses. I think yeah. from from my own experience, it's actually really hard to be present on videos on Zoom for me because at least during the first three months of the pandemic, my children were right behind me. So I was really hesitant to be on Zoom. Now that didn't mean that I wasn't available, that I wouldn't answer texts and phone calls, but I actually struggled with that connection. Um, I spend a large amount of my time when I'm actually in my hospital on the floor with my people talking to them. And so, I mean, I, I don't disagree that it probably brought a lot of connection, but it actually brought me a lot more disconnection from the people that I served daily. I think the video is definitely a, a key component. Um, people have a much, I myself have a much easier time checking out, not engaging as deeply if I'm not on the video. And so I'm pushing in our hospital to move toward um, more of that culture of, of having, being on the video, making that the expectation and the standard. Yeah, I, I think, and I do think, you know, the, 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 the point around what environment you're coming out of does matter, right? So in a hospital, especially a single hospital system, you're in the same building most of the time. Whereas there's a lot of companies I work with that are spread across, uh, five continents. So you're, uh, at least two or three, and in fact, the executive team that I, I was I stepped down from last year, our executive team was in five different locations. Right, we we hardly ever got together outside of a board meeting in person, and so we had you know we had a lot of video calls. But um, you know these organizations are physically spread out around the world, and and so if that's the environment you're in, I think it's a huge enhancement. Um, I I do think as as much as the you know, the, the, the fear of the personal life being behind you. And some people have, you know, whether it's young kids or, you know, they're in a small apartment and, you know, whatever their situation is, there's, there, there's so much variation that we need to have some empathy, but I've, 
I've really enjoyed seeing inside some people's lives and getting to know them on a more personal level by, by being in their home, essentially. Um, and, and I think there's been a plus to that. And, and I, I love video. It's, it's, you know, I'm a visual person. It, it, you know, I, I get as much honestly out of body language on video that I do in, in person. Um, and that's, that's helpful. I think the one, the one thing, and this is advice I've, I've, I've given lots of people is to turn off your self view, right? Because, you know, when you're in person, you forget, you know, you, you just immerse yourself in the other person, right? You don't hold up a little mirror in, in, in meetings, Jamie? I, like to... I, I have a little hat with a mirror. It's, uh, I always paste it on the other wall. <laughs> yeah. my, my head's reflective enough. I can see all sorts of things, but but um, but yeah, you, you end up focusing more on it's easy for people to end up getting almost uh, not obsessed, but uh, tired of, of looking at themselves and worried about their own reactions instead of immersing themselves in the relationship, in the conversation. And so in a video world, I think turning off self view is not just the best for you, but best for the other person as well. I do hit my limits, though. I mean, there, there have been times where I've had a meeting and I've got this calendar scheduling system that automatically generates Zoom meetings. And that's mostly the default. But there are times when someone is asked or they'll just call at that time. And I'm in the Zoom meeting waiting and the phone rings. I'm like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to grab the phone. And I like I'm the type who know I like to pace around. I can't do that on a Zoom call. I can't pace and talk or pace and think. Stand up desk, a stand up desk. You just can't pay. But then, then you're locked in. No, you're not. Who cares if you walk around? I, mean, I did see somebody on a moving a moving desk today during one of the Zoom calls. <laughs> I I uh, I wander around. I mean, I, I I don't turn my back a lot, but I I do about two thirds of my day standing up, and and I I don't lock in. I if I want to if I want to move around a little bit, you know, inside the window, um, it's exactly what I do. I. I, I do like to pace and I have no problems doing on video. But you've got to be careful with the, the Zoom roller coaster that people take you on sometimes if they're on their phone and then they start walking <laughs> to the house. Like, oh. oh, yeah. yeah. If you have motion sickness, it can be dangerous. <laughs> one, one other thing I was just going to add, though, um, you know, the, the team at Kinexus, um, especially in the early days of the pandemic, when we were doing team meetings and weekly check-ins, that was a time for empathy and what I would talk about, like respecting the employee as a whole person. There was so much time spent on just, hey, how are you doing? And as, as an engineer who tends to be pretty task oriented, like sometimes, and, 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 and there was a good lesson from that. And I'm trying to adapt and adjust of that, that time spent on relationships and and just caring for each other um, is maybe something that we need even when it's not a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my team got lucky and we started to do our daily stand-up huddles during this pandemic and we're all in the office and out of the office and I think it really has helped us connect. And I give a lot of credit to my leader too and she said, you know, you're not working during you know, regular, you're not working at home during a pandemic. You're, you're trying to figure out what this looks like. Um, and so she gave a lot of grace. It's, it's that respect for people again. So it's how are we forming different connections and how are we respecting where we're at now and recognizing that it is different. 
Yeah. So these words like respect and love, and I, I, you know, Jamie beat me to the punch on the word empathy. Katie, you talk about grace. I think we've all learned, whether it's dogs barking or kids in the background, to not be judgmental or or, or, or snarky or just recognizing that's just how it is. Yeah, it's going to happen. And people still apologize. I'll be on meetings or I was prepping for a webinar today and someone said, oh, sorry, you may hear some noise. I'm like, no, that, that's how it is. Yeah. So, okay. Although it's different when you're juggling your one-year-old during a meeting to feel that, be that person on the other end of the call. I know it's okay, but it's stressful too. Yeah. No yeah. question. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. And I, I think, uh, when, you know, even if it is a window into your, your world, it's uh, when you can't control all the variables, um, it, you know, it just feels like less control. And that's 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 hard to hard to handle um, all the time. So um, do we have time to talk about any other takeaways or do we need to spend a little do we need to jump into the fun question? We're doing a little real time time check. Yeah, we're. We're kind of running out of time. So maybe if we can do it quickly, maybe we can. It's not, right. our, not our normal routine to do things we'll, quickly. We'll do the rapid. Everyone gets one thought, rapid cycle. There we go. Um, so Dan Markovitz did a session, and I, I've seen him do um, this session online uh, before. He did a Kinexus webinar on this. And his book that I really like, <laughs> uh, Avoiding the Conclusion Trap, um, so maybe we'll start with um, with Jen. What was your takeaway from Dan's session? I love this one. Um, I'm a tool person, so I love that he gave kind of this tool idea um, of write your problem statement and then rewrite it in three different ways. Um, and I think it was really interesting to me to think about like going back to that that thought of like I have the right answer, I have the right problem statement as as the leader of this group. It's like well even my thought of what is the right problem statement might not be the one true problem statement. And how do we take a step back and look at it in multiple different ways and how will that impact the solutions that we, that we search for? Um, so that's definitely something that I'm going to take back and think that the, the concise phrase is language determines the trajectory. So I, I did. Um, I love that one. Katie. I love that he got me like, so I've spent, you know, 10 years of my life designing training and I usually see the end before it hits me in the face. And it was, what was the problem? And I totally missed the problem. And I spend my life helping people craft these problem statements. And I was like, wow, I can still miss it. So I think it was a really good reminder to step back and to make sure that I'm actually looking at the problem in all of the things and not jumping and how easy it is for even us who do this every day to jump. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jamie. Yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's quite hard. And so talking about problem statements, um, you know, I, I think that the fundamental idea is, is that there's a right problem statement is, is just, you know, in many ways, a fallacy. I, I, I always encourage people to write them in pencil uh, with the idea that they can, they can learn, they can, modify that they can take a different perspective on it even if it's just uh based on the idea that well I, I wanted to collaborate with this person in the problem statement uh but now that they won't collaborate now i have to reframe it based on what's the part that only i control there's all sorts of reasons to to that we have to reframe or rethink a problem statement from a different perspective and so um you know the idea i had an interesting conversation the other day about just 
you know, doing experiments around the problem statement. And of course, we have to do them around the answer, but even doing experiments around the problem statement so we don't get too locked in too early, I, I think is important because the word trajectory is one I use all the time. It sets the, the path we go down. Yeah. And I was just going to add, I mean, I think we all, a lot of us talk about not jumping the solutions. I think the interesting jump that people make is jumping to root cause. We talk about something for 10 minutes and people are like, oh, no, no, we magically found the, the root cause. I'm like, well, you know, I think one thing I've learned from mentors of mine is that you can have a hypothesis about what you think the root cause is. And that can only really truly be confirmed or understood through the testing of countermeasures that is designed to circumvent or counter what you think the root cause was. Um, so I think that that's another thing to, to be careful about. Like, I think if we're in a conference room and, we, and someone says, oh, we've, we've, we've discovered the root cause. Like, well, I don't know, maybe I'm being a stickler on language, but I think you may, you know, it may be more uh, accurate to say we gained consensus around a hypothesis that we then need to continue exploring. And like Jamie said, write it in pencil. You know what you know until you learn that you don't know it, I guess. So that's, to me, that's part of the kind of experimental learning nature of lean problem solving. Yep. So um, we always like to end with a fun question. So we'll, we'll move on from our, our conference takeaways. So uh, I wanted to pick one that wasn't too long since we got four of us part of our experiment. So uh, we're looking at our, our favorite, and, and you guys can play along in the chat if you want, our, our favorite lean related word, but, but not for a, a good reason, for a silly reason. Right? So uh, uh, you know, don't pick Muda or whatever that is because, because waste is important. But what's the silly reason why you pick the, the word that you pick? So, um, so let's start with Jen. What's your, uh, what's your word? Um, my word was pokeyoka um, because you do the pokeyoka and you eliminate harm. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we're not all going to sing our answers. I will. <laughs> I, I'm pretty, pretty sure of that, but that is, uh, that is impressive. That is, that is fun. It is a fun word to say. Just That's a good one. That is a great one. Mark, what about yours? So this is a, I, I, this is either easier to say or harder to say with one and a half bourbons in me. It's a German word for schlimbeserung. I, and I butchered that. We'll put the word in the show notes. It is a very long, complex German word, Verschlimbeserung. Uh, but what it means is, so it's a German noun that means an attempted improvement that only makes things worse. I love it. And we've all <laughs> run across that if we're paying attention in our experimental attempts at improvement, right? Yeah, it's it's a perfect for the Germans. Sounds like Schadenfreude. Um, you know, kind of same idea of a continuous improvement. So that's a don't don't yeah. Watch your Schadenfreude about my Verschlimbeserung. <laughs> <laughs> don't take joy in my attempted improvements that only make things worse. <laughs> I like your pronunciation after one and a half whiskeys. I think it got better. Yeah, it sounded like <laughs> I was learning that word. Um, if I I'm curious about the syllable emphasis, whether it's Bush and Besserung or 
Or That's probably so. better, Jamie. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> never studied German. You you worked for a company that was bought by a German company. I don't know if that. Helped. It was, and I'm I'm uh, I'm in German, but that goes back to 1750. So uh, when we came across the ocean, so uh, language is is long gone. So uh, Katie, how about you? Right. So I'm I'm kind of with Jen. I already admitted I have a one year old. I also have a four soon to be four million five year old. Um, and I watch a lot of Disney Plus. That's what I do during um, my quarantine. So I was thinking about Muda and Jen got me thinking down the path. And so I started thinking of that one scene in The Lion King. And really it's Timon and Pumbaa talking to each other and we're just going to substitute the word Muda and pretend that's the way it goes is Muda, what's a Muda? Nothing. What's the Muda with you? It's motto, but you know, so it just makes me giggle. It makes me think of my kids. Nothing, nothing too lean. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's a good enough reason. So uh, that's fine. Of course, Disney uh, can probably wrap their arms around any lean idea at some point. So uh, we'll, we'll end up there one way or the other. And thank you for um, not really singing too much of the real song or we would have licensing issues on the podcast. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's parody, so it's all okay. I hope. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. Um, so, so mine is queuing. Um, you know, I talk about process design, and and partly it's in my in my thesis uh, thesis title, um, but also it's fun trivia. Is the word queuing is the uh, word in the English language with the most consecutive vowels, um, with five consecutive vowels, uh, which seems like far too many, um, but uh, not a good reason. But that's uh, that's one of my my favorite words and favorite bits of trivia about about the word as it is. It's a good word. And the industrial engineer in me has to share the idea that I wish, quote unquote, queuing theory was just called queuing science. Because when I've tried introducing people to queuing theory, then they get turned off and they're like, oh, don't get so theoretical. I'm like, oh, it's real. But it's, it's real. And I actually had the joy of finding out that the case study I wrote on it uh, 22 years ago is still used at MIT today, which is Super cool, but um, nice. yes, it's real, and uh, in the end, it's a, it's an actual applicable math that can help us solve problems, which is I don't want to say always fun, um, but it's it's good. useful. It's useful. All right, so uh, um, we'll talk a little bit uh, since we're still with the conference. Talk a little bit about the uh, uh, the, the charity we're fundraising for. So, Cater, uh, uh, Jen, do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, I'm happy to. So um, do want to bring um, back up our charity. So we are supporting a scholarship fund for the Community College of Aurora. Um, and this is um, going to support Black leaders. Um, the recipients are paired with a mentor and all the contributions help pay for educational expenses. Um, so we have a goal of $2,000 right now that we are aiming to raise. Looks like we're at 1117 um, so far. And so doing amazing work. And Jamie and Mark have graciously agreed to match any um, donations of the second $500 to $1,000. So the Colorado Lean Network is matching the first 500 and. Um, looks like we've already hit that match. And so we have about a little under $400 to go um, for that second match. So would love to um, support 
the the black leaders in, in the Colorado area. Um, and you can do this by texting CLN to 91999. Um, I can right. put up this slide again briefly just so folks can, yeah. can uh, see a glimpse of it. And, and once more for people who are just listening in the podcast, text CLN for Colorado Lean Network to 91999. So we hope people will contribute. And Jamie and I look forward to being able to make that full match. Yeah. Right. So two for one, uh, two for one dollars on your donation for, uh, I'll say the next almost $400 of donations. Uh, so we'll have, for those listening, we'll have, uh, we'll have the link in the webs in the show notes as well. Um, so please do, uh, please do don- donate. And this um, fundraiser is going through um, October 16th, I believe. So we have a little bit of time to, to meet this. It's obviously running through the course of the summit, but we'll be continuing beyond. Awesome. I hope everyone will, uh, will, will check that out. So thank you, um, Jen and Katie and Colorado Lean Network for for choosing that cause and, and helping raising funds for that. And thank you, I see names on screen, everyone who has contributed so far. So uh, gosh, I guess more than an hour has flown by. Is it, it's, it's, time to, it's time to wrap up. This has been fun. It has been good. Thank you. To, um, wrap this up, but uh, Jen House and Katie Bennick have been um, our special guest co-host and panelists today with me and Jamie Flinchbaugh. Um, so thank you for the invitation um, for, for us to come be part of the conference and, and thank you for being part of it. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been amazing. I'm, I fangirled out a lot. Hopefully this was a hypothesis, if the hypothesis for fun uh, played out in reality, I hope. <laughs> Good. For sure. So um, for, for listeners and viewers or, or first time, if, if this is your first time here watching live through the conference, if you want to check out our past episodes, you can find them at leanwhiskey.com. You can spell whiskey, K-E-Y or K-Y at the end. That will forward to a page on my website. Or if you'd rather go to Jamie's website, that is... Find my page at jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. And, you know, if you have not yet subscribed and you're interested in checking out other episodes, you can find us anywhere you might normally subscribe to podcasts, um, apps or what have you. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Um, you can you can find us there. And if you do. Yeah. And please do rate us, review us, uh, subscribe. You know, we, we hope that you enjoy the feed and, and you enjoy listening, but it also helps others find uh, find the program as well. And so, you know, don't know who you might be helping in the process. So please do those things and uh, time for us to bring it home. And so as we do lean whiskey, cheers. 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 You know, Jamie, next episode 21, that, that's a special number since that's drinking age in the U.S. We'll have to figure out. <laughs> I was not drinking whiskey when I was 21. I wasn't either. 